If you have your Bibles, please turn to Luke chapter 17, where we're going to continue to look at verses 1 through 4. In John Bunyan's Pilgrim's Progress, Christian is traveling to the celestial city when he meets with Apollyon, who is a gruesome demonic creature who commands him to turn around and go back to the city of destruction. Christian refuses, and so Apollyon tries to reason with Christian to forsake the Lord and the straight and narrow way. Christian said, I have given him my life and sworn my allegiance to him. How then can I turn back from his way? I would be hanged as a traitor. Well, you did the same to me, said Apollyon. And yet I am willing to pass by all if you will now turn around and go back. What I before promised you, I did as an unbeliever, said Christian. And besides, I count the prince under whose banner I now stand is able to absolve me, yes, and to pardon me from what I did as your accomplice. Besides, O thou destroying Apollyon, to speak the truth, I like his service, his wages, his servants, his government, his company, and his country better than yours. Therefore, stop trying to persuade me any further. I am his servant, and I will follow him. Consider again, warned Apollyon, when you are traveling, what you are likely to meet up with. You know that for the most part, his servants come to an ill end because they are transgressors against me. And my ways, and you know how many of them have been put to shameful deaths. And besides, he groaned, you count his service better than mine, but he has never yet come from the place where he is to deliver any that served him from their enemies' hands. But as for me, how many times, as all the world very well knows, have I delivered either by power or fraud those that have faithfully served me? from he and his servants. And so I will deliver you. Christian smiled and said, his patience at presence to deliver them is on purpose to try their love, to see whether they will cling to him to the end. And as for the ill end you say they come to, it is a most glorious end. For present deliverance, they do not much expect it, for they trust in the glory to come, and then they shall have it when their prince comes in glory with his angels. Apollyon then began to accuse, you have already been unfaithful in your service to him. How do you think you will receive his reward? When, O Apollyon, when have I been unfaithful to him, said Christian? You fainted when you first set out. You almost drowned in this slew of despond. You tried to remove your burden in unlawful ways instead of waiting until your prince took it off. You sinfully slept and lost your scroll of promise. You almost turned back in fear when you saw the lions. And when you speak to me and others of your journey, inwardly you desire vain glory and all that you say and do. All this is true, said Christian. And much more which you have left out. 
But the prince whom I serve and honor is merciful and ready to forgive. Besides, I committed those sinful acts in your country and since have groaned unto them and been sorry for them and obtained pardon from my prince. And then Apollyon broke out in a grievous rage saying, I am an enemy to this prince. I hate his person, his laws and his people, and I have come out to oppose you. Here Bunyan pictures forgiveness as the great defense we have against the accuser of the brethren. Yes, the believer used to march under Satan's banner. Yes, he was a slave of Satan held captive by Satan to do his will. Yes, all believers are great sinners and rebels against their Lord and master. All this is true. But when a person repents, when they turn from their sin, when they believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and follow him, they are perfectly forgiven. Picture in your mind uh, a large sheet of perfectly white paper, maybe three foot by three foot. And imagine that every sin you commit is uh, a mark placed on that perfectly white paper with indelible ink. And consider how early you started to mark that paper. You know, when you were in your mother's womb and that umbilical cord got in the way and you kicked in anger. And when you were young and you didn't get fed right away and you screamed in selfishness or you kicked when you had your diapers changed because you wanted your way. And just think of how from even that very early age, how you quickly blotted out that whole paper until it became completely black and then after that you just increased the darkness of it and layered ink upon ink until no more white could be seen now when you repent of your sins when you believe in Jesus he washes all that indelible ink away so that you are perfectly Clean. Your slate has been erased. The sin has been perfectly washed away so that you are now whiter than snow in the eyes of God. And even after being saved, you still commit sins. And yet, you have forgiveness. Satan accuses you, but you have forgiveness. Satan tempts you to sin and maybe even succeeds in leading you to sin, but you have forgiveness. He can remind you of the sins you have already committed and oh, how you are so undeserving of God's grace, but you have forgiveness. We don't deny his accusations. They're true. And more than he can tell, they're true, because he can't read our hearts. We are great sinners, but Jesus came to save sinners. And we are unworthy, and we deserve hell. But Jesus paid the penalty of our sins. He clothed us in his righteousness so that we could go free. And in doing this, 
He disarmed the accuser of the brethren. And now Apollyon can come against us with all that he has. But we are forgiven. This morning we return to Luke's gospel. Jesus is teaching the multitude. He is teaching the Pharisees, but specifically his disciples. The scribes and Pharisees have been hunting Jesus down for years now, trying to catch him in something wrong that he might say so that they might accuse him and disqualify him in the sight of the people. And surely this grieved Jesus' disciples. I mean, you could imagine loving somebody like his disciples love Jesus and to see the religious leaders constantly attacking and tacking like a little pack of wild dogs nipping at his heels and barking at everything he did. And I am sure that they were even provoked sometimes to the point of violence where they thought maybe we should just take those religious leaders and tar and feather them. And Jesus knows this. Jesus knows this is what they are feeling and thinking. And so he takes this knowledge and uses it as another opportunity to instruct them in how to respond to people who sin against us. And this is what he says in Luke 17, verses 1 through 4. Follow along in your Bibles as I read. He said to his disciples, it is inevitable that stumbling blocks come, but woe to him through whom they come. It would be better for him if a millstone were hung around his neck and he were thrown into the sea than that he would cause one of these little ones to stumble. Be on your guard. If your brother sins, rebuke him. If he repents, forgive him. And if he sins against you seven times a day and returns to you seven times saying, I repent, forgive him. Well, last time we started to look at verses 1 and 4, and and I just said there were four necessary steps that uh, we needed to take to avoid an ungodly response to those who sin against us. Some people came up after the service and said, Pastor Jack, I only got three. It's because that's all I gave you. And we learn that we should expect to be sinned against. Jesus says it is inevitable. Stumbling blocks will come. A stumbling block is the Greek word scandalon, the word we get scandal from. It really refers to a bait stick and a trap. The animal sees the bait and is lured to his destruction. A scandalon. In the same way, when somebody tempts you or entices you to sin, they are becoming a bait stick. They are luring you to your destruction. And even if they don't entice you specifically to sin, but are sinning themselves, their bad example is teaching you to sin. And in that way, they are still a scandal on. Secondly, we saw that Jesus gives a stern warning to those who would intentionally attempt Uh, intentionally tempt others to sin. He pronounces woe on them, condemnation, judgment. And he says it would be better, a good thing, a preferred thing, a thing you should do instead of tempting somebody to sin. And that would be to put a millstone around your neck and jump into the sea. 
This last week, we were in the Smoky Mountains. We went to this old water-powered mill, Mingus Mill, in the Smoky Mountains. And there outside the door were three very large millstones about three feet across and about two feet thick. And I looked at them. I even took some pictures of them. And I thought, that would be bad to go swimming with that around your neck. But Jesus says that would be a good thing, a better thing, a preferred thing than if you ever think of leading someone else into sin. Finally, we learned that someone who sins against us, specifically by tempting us to sin, we need to not go tell someone else, not gossip, not grow bitter and angry, not give them the cold shoulder, not try to avoid them. But we need to go to them. And rebuke them, show them their fault, expose their error, reveal the sin uh, for what it is. And you don't need to do it in a mean or harsh way. In fact, you should do it in the fruit of the spirit. But you need to tell the person plainly and forthrightly that they are in sin. They have violated the scriptures. This is what the Bible says. And therefore, they need to repent of that. That is the loving thing to do, the good thing to do. And so that's what Jesus says we are to do. But think of how often when people sin against us, we do one of the other things. We grow bitter, angry. You know what so-and-so did to me? Tell other people, avoid them, stew on it. And we're not talking about personal preferences here, convictions or gray areas, but sins. People aren't sinning against you when they fail to meet up to your expectations of them. They aren't sinning against you when you assume they have evil motives, but you don't know. They aren't sinning against you because you think they should obey God in a little different way or with a little bit more fervor or like you do in a certain area because that's how you like to do it. Someone is not a stumbling block if they exercise a liberty you feel uncomfortable exercising, though they may be a stumbling block to the weak, that's not specifically a sin necessarily. There must be a violation of scripture, a violation of biblical principle or wisdom so that you can bring them to it and point to the Bible says this and you've done that. Therefore, I want you to know it's wrong and you need to repent of that. And so rebuking somebody is the loving thing to do for them, for the church, And for the glory of God. It's how people grow in Christ. And this is where we ended last time. We never got to the fourth step. Which I'm afraid we're not even going to finish this morning. Forgiveness is such a vast topic. And it is so interrelated with so many other things. And as I sat in my study, I began to think of all the different things I need to mention so that somebody doesn't come up and wear me out with, well, what about this? I try and anticipate all those, so you stay away. (laughs) But this morning, we're going to first consider that we need to keep forgiving. That is the fourth point. We need to keep on forgiving and we're just going to barely start looking at this. Look at verse three again, where Jesus says, be on your guard. If your brother sins, rebuke him. And if he repents, forgive him. The word translated forgive is a word that literally means to send away. It's even used of divorce, like a person sending away a wife. It means to let go. It means to 
forgive or pardon a debt. And that's what the literal word means. You know, you might be talking to somebody and somebody might do, you know, something to you and uh, they, they might see it and say, you know what, you just need to let that go. You just need to forget about it. I mean, yeah, I saw what they did to you, but hey, just let it go. Just forget it. They're, you know, we're all sinners. And, and what they're trying to do is basically tell you what this word means, to just let it go. Don't try and enact a judgment against them. Don't try to get justice. Don't try to, you know, get your pound of flesh out of them. We see a picture of this in Leviticus 16 where there was uh, these... You go out to uh, get a big batch of uh, goats that are unblemished and you cast lots for them and you pick one of those goats and and, uh, a person was appointed to lead that goat far out into the wilderness. It was called the scapegoat and uh, once out there it would start eating and that person would sneak away from it and basically ditch it in the wilderness. And that was a picture of God's forgiveness of us as as our sins are to be sent away. Never to be seen or heard from again. And that is the concept of what it means to forgive, to forget it. If you can, to send it away from your thoughts, to not churn over it, to never see it again. Now, to help us organize our thoughts, I have constructed an artificial outline whose points remain to be discovered. But I know the first point. You can think of all these as sub-points to the fourth point, which is we need to forgive. And how many there will be, only God will tell. The first thing I want to look at is the pattern of your forgiveness. The pattern of your forgiveness. You know, as pastors, we have people come to us at times who are very agitated, angry, bitter, frustrated, discouraged because some friend, some person has sinned against them and sometimes in really jaw-dropping ways. You know, sometimes relatives suing them or betraying them or robbing them or cheating them. Um, Just lots of really bad grievous sins and they have been hurt so deeply and wounded so much that they have this anger this bitterness in their soul and they can't get over it they 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 want to just be at peace they they want to be reconciled they want to have restitution or something they 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 just want it to go away And though in their minds, they're thinking to themselves, I know I need to forgive, but they're also thinking, I need to get a gun. I mean, you know, there's just this, they have these bad thoughts and they know they're bad and they want to get rid of them, but they're just plagued because they're hurt deeply and they don't know how to resolve this pain that they have received from someone else sinning against them. Now, if you were their counselor, what would you tell them? I mean, if somebody came to you and said, I'm just angry, I'm bitter, I'm frustrated, and this person did this and this and this and this, I mean, would you tell them, you know what you need to do? You need to get a rubber bat, visualize that person's face on the wall, and just beat it until you're in a sweat and you finally feel release. (laughs) No, you'd have to go see a psychiatrist to get that advice. 
Would you instruct them to get revenge in overt or covert ways? You know, subtly ignore them. Subtly undermine their business when you see them coming down the hall. Take a turn. Turn your head when you walk by. Always just kind of shut them out. Never support them. Oh, they're going to be there. I'm not going. I'm not going to look at them. That's a form of revenge. Would you maybe counsel them that, you know, that person's just a loser and because they're a loser, they're not worth your fretting. And so just pretend it never happened. Or would you counsel them to, you know what? You need to distract yourself. I'd get into drugs. I'd start drinking. (laughs) You know, just drown your sorrows in substance abuse and entertainment. How would you help them find release? How would you help them find peace and, and happiness and joy and even love towards that person who has hurt them? Well, I just want you to know, um, you could go over to our preschoolers and they could tell you the answer. Because whenever you go over there and you say, so what's the answer to this? They always raise their hand. You say, what is it? They always say, Jesus And that's right. But when we get older, sometimes we forget the right answer. The answer is Jesus. We can forgive others because of Jesus. Are you bitter at somebody? Are you angry at somebody? Has somebody hurt you? And maybe you haven't done anything externally real mean, but you're really kind of avoiding them. You're hiding from them. You won't talk to them. You know who they are, and they know who you are. They might not even be a believer, or maybe maybe you just have a little silent war going on there because you refuse to act towards them in the fruit of the Spirit, to really love them because they didn't meet up to your expectations. Maybe they even sinned against you. And maybe this has gone on for quite some time. You've really become hardened in your heart and grown cold towards them. If this is the case, it is almost a certainty that you don't know or fully understand the forgiveness you have in Christ. Because that's where the cure begins. You may understand you have forgiveness in Christ and you may understand that Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection are the the foundation of that forgiveness. But if you are having difficulty forgiving those who sin against you, you need to better understand who you are. And you need to better understand the magnitude of what Christ has done for you. And so this morning, I just want you to come with me on a little journey through the majestic land of forgiveness in Jesus And I want you to see if you can take in the whole canvas. This is the big picture. You need to step back instead of focusing on the little black mark that someone has committed against you and stand back and see the whole picture. And then ask yourself, is that what I know to be true? Adam and Eve were created perfect. They were put in a perfect place. And yet they fell into sin. You know, they they only had one rule. Don't eat of that one tree. I mean, that's pretty easy, don't you think? I wish we only had one rule. (laughs) And yet Adam, being the head, the leader, is held responsible for the fall. And when Adam sinned, all 
who are in Adam sinned with him. He was cursed and in him all his descendants were cursed with him. In other words, because everybody came from Adam, therefore everybody fell in Adam. So when he sinned, he basically drug the entire human race into sin with him since he would only be able to father other sinners with Eve. This is quite apparent with his first son, Cain. You remember what Cain did? They did the sacrifice thing. And because Abel's sacrifice was right, because Abel did what was righteous, Cain hated him. Now think about that. He hated him for his righteousness and then killed him in cold blood. That is amazing. But Cain was born a sinner because his father Adam was a sinner. And we too are descendants of Adam and therefore we too are sinners. David reminds us in Psalm 51.5 that we are all conceived in sin. From the moment of conception, we're sinners. In Psalm 58.3, he says, we all go astray from the womb. Moses says in Genesis 8.21 that we are evil from our youth. You know, selfishness comes as naturally to as breathing to us. Nobody needs to teach you how to deceive and lie and trick your little brother or sister when you're a young person. And you're good at it. You're an expert at birth. You're born an expert at sinning because it is your nature. You were born a sinner. You sin because it is your nature to sin. Just as a dog knows how to bark because it's a dog and a cat knows how to purr. So you know how to sin because you're a sinner. And you sin every day and you've never stopped sinning ever. You did nothing to please God before coming to Christ. If indeed you have come to Christ. In fact, you were or maybe still are hostile to God. Your every breath is an offense to his infinite holiness. Do you know how much infinite is? That's like from here to the farthest reaches of the universe that the Hubble telescope can see, that compared to infinity is like a small line on a line that goes off beyond what you can see. That huge distance is nothing compared to affinity. That's what we're talking about here. And you have offended an infinitely holy God. And that is why Jonathan Edwards rightly said in his famous sermon, Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God, that it is only the mere pleasure of God and that of an angry God that keeps you one moment from hell. You and I did not deserve to be spared from God's wrath, and yet he has extended mercy to us. And, you know, how do you think God feels? Just if you can, as far as it is possible for a sinner to put their place, put themselves in the place of a holy God. How do you think an infinitely holy God feels when he extends grace and mercy to his creatures so that they won't sin and they continue to sin? 
And then he extends more mercy and grace and they keep presuming upon his mercy and sin and sin and sin against him still. As John reminds us in John chapter 3 verses 19 and following that you love darkness rather than light for your deeds were evil and you did not come to the light lest your deeds should be exposed. And as Paul says in Romans 3.11 there are none who seek after God, not even one. Like the multitudes in Jesus' time when he was being tried before the multitude by Pilate They said, away with him. Away with him. We have no king but Caesar or Satan or self or whatever you're living for. Put it in there. You didn't want Christ ruling over you. You didn't want him telling you what to do. You didn't want to turn from your sins. You made yourself or something or someone else your own God and worshiped and served the creature rather than your creator. It is the problem with all of us. And all of this offended, angered, and incensed the Lord of glory. who The scriptures say he is angry at the wicked every day. Being a just God, it would have been good and right for him to execute us on the spot, to cast us into the lake of fire where we would suffer day and night forever and ever. That would be the right thing to do. And yet what did he do? He extended mercy and grace. Mercy held back his wrath and grace gave us time to repent. I'm sure there are some here this morning who are still worshiping the creature rather than the creator who day and night presume upon God's grace and you've never repented. You don't love the Lord. You've never given your life to Christ. You've never been born again. And right now, right this moment, God sustains you and holds you back from the judgment you deserve, giving you moments, more moments to repent and yet you will not do it. You know, until you repent and believe on Jesus as your Savior, you're just provoking him. You're antagonizing him. You're arousing his anger against you every moment. You never please God. You never honor God. Even when you do deeds which society says are good, it doesn't please God. Even when you do the same deeds Christians do that do give glory to God, you don't please God. Because until you come to Christ, until you know Jesus Christ is your Savior, until you're clothed with His righteousness, you can never please an infinitely holy God. And therefore, everything you do, no matter how great it is and grand it is and how wonderful you think it is, God doesn't think it's wonderful. It's just filthy rags in His sight. And think of the great number of your sins. Think of how many things you've done since you were conceived that do not meet up to loving the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. You know, it only takes one sin. It only takes one seemingly insignificant sin to damn a person to hell. Some people think, well, that sounds a little extreme. 
I don't know. You mean to tell me that somebody's going to suffer day and night forever and ever because, you know, they, they told a little white lie or they were a little impatient or they did this little thing and they just said, that just doesn't seem right. That seems like the punishment far outweighs the crime. That's because they don't know God or they don't know him well enough. You don't understand that he is infinitely holy and righteous. Therefore, every sin against him is an infinite offense to his holiness. Do you remember what James says in James 2.10? He says, for whoever keeps the whole law and yet stumbles in one point has been guilty of the whole. Have you ever seen safety glass break? It's kind of cool. It breaks in little pieces. The windows on your car, you could go out there and hit them with a hammer and see what happens. If you have a sliding glass door, you could see what happens. They take glass and then they fire it and they temper it. And once you do that, you can't cut it anymore. You can't alter it anymore. You can't trim it anymore. And so if you were to have a big piece of tempered safety glass and you were to think, you know what I'm going to do? I'm just going to break off the corner. You could get yourself a little pair of pliers and go down to the corner and grab it and go. And when you did that, the whole thing would blow apart and you'd have a big pile of glass chips. And that is like the law of God. The law of God is fixed. It is unalterable. And therefore, when you commit your insignificant sin, you break the whole. Do you remember what Jesus said? He said, the greatest commandment is to love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. Now, would you say that is a pretty significant commandment? Oh, it is the greatest commandment, isn't it? Therefore, to break that commandment is to break the greatest one. Now, The whole law and the prophets, every command in the Bible rests on that one command. Because every act of disobedience is a violation of the greatest commandment. It is a failure to love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. Therefore, that one sin is the greatest law-breaking sin. No matter what you think, God says it's huge. And we commit sins like that every day, almost every moment. So it is with the law of God. You break a little piece, you break the whole. You're guilty of all. You deserve hell. And God, though all-powerful, is not able to overthrow his immutable nature. He must have justice. Every sin must be paid for in full. The scriptures repeat over and over him. God will by the no, by no means allow the guilty to go unpunished. He has to do it. He has to punish that sin. He must have justice, perfect justice, complete justice for every sin that is committed. And what do you suppose is the penalty of sinning against infinite holiness? What do you think his perfect justice demands? eternal punishment and there you are there i am the chief of sinners the champions of rebellion who drink iniquity in like fish drink in water 
who sin like the sparks fly upward, who are desperately sick and deceitful above all else, whose thoughts and intentions are only evil continuously. You cannot but sin. You love sin. It is your nature to sin. In addition to all the sins that you have willfully committed, which you committed in willful rebellious acts against God, on top of all that are all the ones you didn't even know you're committing. And on top of that are all Adam's sins, which are dumped on you. You get born with that truckload of sins. So you have all Adam's sins, all the ones you willfully committed, all the ones you committed in ignorance. And they're all against you to condemn you, and rightly so. And so how will you be delivered? How can you escape? How can you stand before a holy God? Well, the deliverance comes from a very unexpected place. I mean, you just look there. Look there and see a young lady. And in her womb is a child. The son of God and the son of man conceived of the Holy Spirit. And see that young baby boy growing up in a sin-cursed world which he himself created. And he never kicks in anger. He never screams in frustration. And as a young man, he always does what his parents tell him to do. And they never ask him twice. See him there growing in wisdom and stature and knowledge, working with his hands, building, crafting, studying, praying to his heavenly father. God's justice is waiting for him, though. It is calling out to him to come and make atonement for sins. He enters into the ministry, is tempted, is confirmed to be a prophet, the very son of God from a voice from heaven by his miracles, by the Holy Spirit descending from above. And he does good and only good and always good. He teaches the multitudes great things. He models perfect obedience to the law. And though tempted in all things as we are, yet he is without sin. He never sins. Even the demons, when he runs into them, say, we know who you are. You're the Holy One of God. But he knows he needs to drink the bitter cup and that justice must have its due. And so he is betrayed by Judas with a kiss. The shepherd is struck and the sheep are scattered and his disciples run away from him. He's falsely accused, unjustly tried. He is beaten. He is mocked. He is spit upon, scourged, rejected by his own countrymen, despised and forsaken, smitten of God and afflicted. And oh, look how they have sinned against him. Look at how they sin against him over and over again. And he has done nothing wrong. He is perfectly innocent, but they keep sinning against him. And after being forced to carry his own cross to the place of the skull, he is nailed to it. And that cross is dropped into a hole with a thud, tearing his flesh, causing excruciating pain for what? Nothing he did. And there, look at him. See the perfect, holy, righteous, innocent son of God suffering on that tree, rendering himself a guilt offering. Suffering the punishment for those for whom the stroke was due. The chastening of our well-being falling on him. Him being crushed for our iniquities. 
and see him there stripped and beaten and bleeding and badgered, the Son of God, the Lord Jesus Christ, bearing the sins of the world. And in the pinnacle of his pain, suffering and need, when innumerable sins are crushing the life out of him, who knew no sin, it gets worse, for all his disciples have abandoned him. Oh, the leader said, I will never deny you. And yet he denied him three times. The rest said, we will never deny you. And they have all fled from him in his greatest time of need. But he has one comfort, one comfort. And that is he has communion with his heavenly father. He's always had that communion. It's existed from eternity past and it's never been broken. And then, in a moment, something worse still happens. In his greatest time of need and weakness, when the blackness of the sins of the world engulf him, in terrifying moment, the communion which he has always had with his father is instantly severed and is gone. And in its place is a fury, a wrath, a fierceness of anger which he has never known before. And it is coming from his father. In addition to that, all the sins of the world are now bearing down upon him. Tear seizes him and he cries out in agony, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He is alone. And at that very moment, when the colossal weight of every sin of the world, combined with the fierceness and anger of his father's wrath, is bearing down upon him like the whole weight of the universe bearing down upon the tip of a needle, it's finished. It's finished. And he commits his spirit into the father's hands and he breathes his last and he dies. His body is buried in a rich man's tomb. Three days later, he is raised from the dead. To prove that he had committed no sin, to prove that death had no power over him, and to assure all those who believe in him that he is able to raise us from the dead too. Is this what you see when you think about who you are and what Jesus has done for you? Do you see that though he was sinless, yet others, including yourself, have sinned against him in incredible ways? Do you see how, as Peter reminds us in 1 Peter 3.18, that Christ died also for sins once for all, the just for the unjust, so that he might bring us to God, having been put to death in the body, but made alive in the spirit? Jesus celebrating the Lord's Supper, looking ahead to what would be accomplished, took that cup in his hand. And Matthew 26, 28 says, this is the covenant in my blood. Poured out for the forgiveness of sins, your sins. Paul says in Ephesians 1, 7, in him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace. 
But there is more behind the scenes which must be understood because Jesus was a willing sacrifice. He paid the penalty. He gave himself a ransom for all. He satisfied the just penalty for the sins of the world, having volunteered for the iniquity of us all to fall on him. And therefore, the father's perfect justice was satisfied. He could ask for nothing else in payment because he had the perfect blood of his only begotten son to atone for our sins. And this caused a chain of events in the mind and counsel of God, which many sermons could not tell. I'm just going to summarize. For those who repent of their sins and believe in Jesus, they receive perfect atonement. They receive propitiation, a word that means a sacrifice that satisfies the wrath of God against them. Not only that, they are justified by his blood. You were declared to be righteous in Jesus. You were adopted by God into his family. You were baptized in the church by the Holy Spirit, who was then given to you as a pledge to strengthen you, encourage you, comfort you, help you. You were sanctified. You were transferred from the kingdom of darkness to the kingdom of his beloved son. You were made into a new creature in Christ. You were granted every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ. You have waiting for you unimaginable glories that only eternity will tell. You were pardoned, forgiven of all your sins. And the punishment you deserve fell on Christ. Not only were your sins taken away, not only were you washed whiter than snow, but Christ imputes to you, reckons to you, gives to your account his perfect righteousness, his infinite holiness, so that now it is yours forevermore. And this is why Peter happily preached at Pentecost in Acts 2.38, Repent, each of you, and be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the Holy Spirit. It is why Paul said in Colossians 2, verses 13 and 14, When you were dead, in your transgressions and the uncircumcision of your flesh, he made you alive together with him, having forgiven us all our transgressions, having canceled out the certificate of debt consisting of decrees against us, which was hostile to us. And he has taken it out of the way, having nailed it to the cross. It's why John reminds us in 1 John 2, 12, I am writing you, little children, because your sins have been forgiven for his namesake. And so what does this all mean? It means you didn't deserve it. It means you didn't earn it. It means you were saved by grace. You were a rebel, a sinner, a idolater, You sinned against God more than you could ever know. And yet God, though he had every right to enact his holy justice against you, execute you and cast you into hell, he did not exercise that right. Instead, he extended mercy and grace to you because you believed in his son. He put all the thoughts of justice and anger and wrath and fury towards you away from him. Because of Christ. And now there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Believer, you are now this very moment perfectly, completely, continually, everlastingly forgiven in Christ. Not because of anything you did or earned. 
because of what Christ did. And being forgiven, you receive eternal life, the privilege and pleasure of knowing that forever and ever you will be in the presence of your Savior who will love you with a love everlasting. And so you're bitter at somebody. You're angry because they put a little mark on you. I think you need to rethink things. The cure, the solution, the way of finding peace, joy, and release from those who sin against you is to look at you and your own sin against God and to see what Christ has done for you. The author of Hebrews instructs us in Hebrews 12, verses 2 and 3, you need to fix your eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, despising shame, and has sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. You need to consider him who has endured such hostility by sinners against himself, so that you will not grow weary and lose heart. And just as the grace of God is enough to save you, it is enough to enable you to forgive that person. I want you to know we have a lot more. That's just the first point of the sub points. (laughs) Let me just close with some words from Charles Spurgeon in the sermon entitled, A Solemn Deprival. And when concerning forgiveness, he said this, listen carefully. He has put away your many sins. You were without Christ, and your sin stood like yonder mountain whose black and rugged cliff threatened the very skies. And there fell a drop of Jesus' blood upon it, and it all vanished in a moment. The sins of all your days had gone in an instant by the application of the precious blood. Oh, bless Jehovah's name that you can now say, now freed from sin, I walk at large. My Savior's blood, my full discharge, content at his dear feet I lay, a sinner saved and homage pay.